Hi, I'm Adam. Hello, I'm Joe. Welcome to Pride and Progress, a podcast which amplifies the voices of LGBT plus educators and allies. In each episode, we're joined by a variety of guests to discuss how we can collectively reimagine our educational spaces as LGBT plus inclusive. Join us as we learn, unlearn and celebrate the power of diversity. Hello friends and welcome to Pride and Progress. This week we've got a very special episode as we are celebrating the launch of our book. Yes, and it's so exciting that this is happening on the first weekend of Pride Month. So to everyone listening, happy Pride and thank you for joining us to celebrate the publication of our book, Pride and Progress, Making Schools LGBT Plus Inclusive Spaces. Yeah, it's been a really exciting week. And just this Sunday gone, we had a book launch in Nottingham where we had a panel discussion. Uh, Joe and I were talking about the book and we had an amazing turnout. And the buzz in the room was really fantastic. It was so exciting to see the amount of people that really cared about this work and have kind of been empowered and motivated by it. So in this episode today, um, in a minute, we're going to invite back the third member of Pride and Progress, uh, George, who's going to interview us about the book. And then we're going to go to the book launch from Sunday and we're going to hear from our fantastic panel of LGBT educators and allies. So welcome back to Pride and Progress, the brilliant George White. Hello both, it's great to be back with you. It feels like such a long time. Uh, I don't think it is, but I think a lot's happened. So I'm wondering if you can tell us how Pride and Progress, the podcast, became a book. It has been a long time since we last spoke on the podcast because you... As people will be aware, I'm sure, we're our first guest on the podcast, George. And then you joined us at the end of our first series to talk about how that series of conversations had gone and, and the impact that that had had. And since then, we've done another series and a, a partway through series three now as well. I realise that doesn't answer your question. Um, where did the book come from? It really began from, from a conversation that Adam had. So maybe Adam's the right person to answer that question. Certainly. I mean, like so many things, it just kind of happened by happy accident. Like, you know, so much of Pride of Progress has happened in that way. Um, so uh, about a year ago, Joe and I were on the NASBIT podcast, which is the National Association for School-Based Teacher Trainers, just talking about our work and some of the work we do in terms of training others and the teaching network and so on. And then the next day, um, Amy, who is our editor, she slid into my DMs on LinkedIn and she just said, listen to the podcast. Um, really love the work that you're both doing. If you ever think about writing a book, let me know she said so I messaged Joe almost like fancy writing a book in that sort of you know joking glib way and then about a day later we're like yes we would like to write a book um so it happened almost just by chance so yeah the next day Joe and I met to talk about what that book might look like and that's kind of how the process began so how easy was it to change the podcast into a book how did that work so I guess the first thing we did was kind of sat down together and said, if if we're going to write a book, what do we want to achieve with that book? What's its purpose going to be? Almost like what's its mission statement going to be? And part of that meant looking at some of the other books that are in this field. There's an increasing number of great books that address LGBT education in, in lots of different ways. But I guess be, with our background being... Um, starting life kind of as, as a podcast and then kind of organizing these community events really we wanted to center story in, in in our book so we put together this pitch of what we thought our book could look like 
which was a book that would bring together research, theory, and the lived experiences of LGBT educators, specifically the LGBT educators that we'd spoken to and who had shared their stories with us on the podcast. I think that anyone who listens to the podcast regularly will have noticed that, that Adam and I kind of have these natural roles that have developed organically over time in the podcast, where I would say that Adam is, is probably the intelligent one of the team and brings the theory and the research and and such a great understanding um, around the different themes that we explore. And and I judge, I just love to chat. I just love to talk. So I, I, I guess those roles kind of developed into the pitch for the book where we said, actually, if if Adam can really unpick what each of these themes looks like in research and in theory, and then I can look at what it looks like in practice by storytelling and sharing some of the stories from our podcast, then we can pull that together to say, actually, this is what that theme looks like in theory, in practice, and most importantly, in action in your school. And it was really important for us to make sure that it was different to other books kind of on the market because what was you know one of the tasks we had to do was right even though they approached us to write the book we still had to kind of pitch our idea so we looked at all the existing lgbt books and you know on one hand it's great so many of them exist but on the other hand obviously it's a bit depressing that they still need to exist um, but we really thought about what kind of book we could contribute something that was new and something that was going to be useful and our editor sent us some books of other podcasts that she'd work with. And a lot of them are done kind of just transcripts of the episodes and some thoughts around it. And those are great books, but we wanted to write something a little bit different. So as Joe's beautifully described, it was kind of taking 10 themes, which we'll perhaps talk about in a second, and approaching those from two different angles. One that kind of has that academic spine to kind of give it that quote unquote credibility when we're doing this work. And then the other half of that chapter that Joe so beautifully writes is that is the story, the lived experience. And Joe has such a poetic way of speaking and writing and exploring those ideas. It brings them to life in such a kind of really empathetic, visceral way. You lead the book feeling like you've really understood the lives of others. And I think Ashley beautifully described um, at the book launch, as, and we'll hear that later on in this episode. She said, when you finished the book, you felt like you've you've been spending time with the community of people, a community of friends, and you've kind of got that real sense of lived experience and people with a real broad range of experiences. So hopefully that comes through really strongly in the book. How do you envisage people using the book? So we, we kind of set out this, this kind of, um, I don't know if it's a mission statement or a, a kind of goal, or I'm not sure, but there's, there's a sentence in the book that says that we think every person in a school community deserves to feel free to be themselves, to feel safe, seen, supported, and to feel like they belong. And really, the, the book is about, right, how do we make that happen? If we agree that that's a common goal that we should all have, how do we make that happen? So the book starts off by setting out the scene. Chapter one explores the history of LGBT inclusive education in our country. And from then, we look at some of the difficulties and the challenges that, that have been created in our educational spaces. In chapter two and three, we look at heteronormativity and cisnormativity. And having kind of set the scene, we then move on to look at the solutions. So beyond that, we have chapters on language, curriculum, representation and visibility, community and connection, intersectionality, leadership, identity. And finally, we end on almost kind of a call to action with allyship and advocacy. So the 10 chapters, the 10 themes that we explore really are the tools that educators need to begin that process of reimagining their space, to create a space where everyone is free to be themselves and safe, seen, supported, and can feel like they belong. Um, I, I guess, Adam, it might be useful to to kind of imagine some of the ways that, that some teachers might use this in schools. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we it's purposely quite a short book. I mean, it's about 50,000 words, which might sound a lot because it's kind of like the length of a thesis, but really it's about 120 pages or so. So actually, if you wanted to, you could sit on a Sunday afternoon, nice glass of wine, read the whole thing and just get a real sense of where we are, where we're going to, the strategies and so on and so forth. Or you could use it slightly more strategically or slightly more forensically. And I think let's just looking down the list here of chapters we've looked at, it might be thinking about curriculum. Okay, so you might be a middle leader and you might be thinking, actually, I'd like to do a curriculum scrutiny around currently what our provision is about inclusion and perhaps what our opportunities are. And then you might go to that chapter, you might look at some of the theory about what curriculum is and the ways we can challenge and adapt it. You might read some of the stories of teachers that have successfully made their curriculums more inclusive. And then each chapter ends with a reflection opportunity where we pose some questions or some thoughts or even some actions about things you might do next to make your school more inclusive. So like I say, it might be you go and read that curriculum chapter, you look at some of the good practice, you use those questions to reflect upon your own practice, and that can then become a plan of action uh, in your school. Um, some of these questions we know people have already used in terms of like CPD, things they've sort of done as tasks individually in the department, making notes and feeding back. Some have even used it at leadership teams in discussions there. So the book can be used in a variety of ways, but we hope it's kind of got that real practical uh, element to it because obviously it's been written by two practitioners and it's full of uh, the examples of people that work in schools currently. So you both have done some really great work educating us in what, you know, what we can do to make our classrooms more inclusive. What have you two learned from doing this? It's interesting for me because I, it, it actually was the, the day that we we're recording about three years ago, I tweeted for the first time saying, I, I want to connect with other LGBT educators. I wanted to build some kind of community to connect with other people, to, to listen to them, to learn from them, to, to learn about myself more. And that was about three years ago to, to this day, to this week. And I think in compiling the book, I have had to kind of realize how far I've come since then. You know, we've spoken to over 50 LGBT educators now, and some of those being teachers, leaders, some of the, the charities that work in this sector. It's such a wide variety of voices who we've spoken to who, who now come through the book. And I've learned so much from that. And I think in compiling the book and putting it together with Adam over the last year, it's really helped me to see how far I've come with my own understanding of, of, of not only how we make our schools more inclusive, but of how I can, can be myself in educational spaces. There's been so much growth within myself during that time. And it's been, I guess, a really nice reflection opportunity for me to notice how far I've come. I would completely agree with that. It's a real kind of like stock taking moment, isn't it? When you sit and write something, it allows you to really distill and reflect. And like you say, in the last two or three years, the amount of work that we've done through the podcast and networks and those kind of things, it's an opportunity to realise how much you've learned from other people and to be able to then distill that is quite an honour, actually. It's a real privilege. The other thing that I've kind of, the one thing I really enjoyed about the book, because obviously I, for each chapter I'm writing it from a theoretical perspective to try and give it that sense of, you know, again, quote unquote, credibility. I really enjoyed researching the intersectionality chapter because I thought I had a pretty good understanding of what intersectionality was. Um, and I kind of know how it's used in the current discourse. But actually, going back to the origins of the term, you know, it's coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw, a law professor, initially looking at the intersection of race and uh, gender and some of the legal discriminations that took place at that time. So it's been really interesting looking at the law uh, and the theory around it and kind of how that's evolved into current uses today. So I really loved writing that chapter and some of the other ones, but it was a great opportunity to dig into some literature I perhaps wouldn't have had the opportunity to look at otherwise. The other thing I'd say, you know, in terms of kind of what I've learned 
through Pride and Progress and through writing this book. And, and we talked about this briefly when we had a conversation at our book launch last weekend. I really have learned to be more hopeful because when I think about when I started my teaching career and and I felt like I had to hide myself and I didn't see that there was ever a time when I wouldn't feel that way, particularly in schools, but generally too. And I felt like schools weren't particularly inclusive spaces and I didn't know that I had the power to change that. And I think through speaking to all the amazing people who we've had the, the pleasure to meet through this podcast and this project has taught me that actually there is hope for a more inclusive education system. There is hope that I can be part of that. I think the stories that you share really resonate with people. And I think it's really nice to be able to look back on where you've come from. But what do you envisage the future being for Pride and Progress? I was smiling because obviously we talked about this before and our first answer was to create a musical. So I'm still a very big advocate of that idea. I think we need a stage show. I think we need to tour the country of Pride of Progress, the musical. Um, yeah, there's there's lots of things I think we both like to do. And actually, it's not just us because obviously, you know, our, our group of people, our network is growing and growing. And George, you're very much part of Pride and Progress, as are so many of the people that we have got a lot of time for because they uh, do so much wonderful work in the community and they really help us as a platform. So there's lots of things, but I really do think we've got, we're getting to a point now where we've got such a collection of voices. Um, we've actually got real power as a group. And I think we need to start leveraging that in some way. You know, we don't know what the legislation is going to be coming up soon in terms of trans guidance and the reviews of the RFC policies and that kind of thing. But it could present some challenges for LGBT people, particularly trans people. So I think as a group of people, we've probably got a bit of responsibility here to kind of have a collective voice um, to maybe, whether it's present a counter view, whether it's to inform legislation, whether it's to be the slightly more activist role, I'm not sure what that might look like yet. But I do think there's not only an opportunity, but also kind of um, a necessity. We've got that kind of responsibility, I think, at this point. I, I completely agree. And, and I guess when I think about what I want the future of this work to look like, for me, it's, it's around, I don't know if the word's consistency, but we have shared the stories of fantastic educators that are doing amazing work in their school. But I also spend a lot of time visiting schools where that work isn't being done or when homophobia or transphobia is a real problem in that school, in that community. So I guess we, we've put together this book that is a, um, a guide for educators on how to make their educational spaces more inclusive. So I hope the future of Pride and Progress is that we can reach more schools, reach more educators and reimagine our educational sp spaces collectively and, and take these ideas that we're seeing in these pockets of amazing practice and think about what they look like more broadly. And just building upon what Joe said there, um, We've been working towards the book for such a long time because, you know, even though it took a year ago we signed the contract, we only actually had six months to write it. It's been a very, very busy year. But we said to ourselves, once the book was released, we would then focus on the next part, which is what Joseph alluded to. So what we're planning to do is put a training program together that kind of complements the book um, that can be accessed by schools, uh, primary, secondary, even university level. Um, and we're hoping that that's going to be ready to roll out from September. So keep your eyes on our socials, but we're very much looking forward to turning this into a training program uh, that can help schools become more LGBT plus inclusive too. George, we want to give you the most enormous thank you. We are so grateful for your time um, to record today uh, on the book launch uh, earlier this week, but also just for everything you do generally in, in this field. I, we joked just before we started recording um, this afternoon that I'm actually a bit sick of my friends messaging me, telling me how much they love George after the book launch this week, um, because everybody just talked about how 
warm, charming, funny you were, but also just the incredible work you're doing. And I think you opened so many people's minds this week, and that really is an incredible thing. So thank you for everything you do. Um, and thank you for kind of interviewing us today for this part of the podcast. Um, so I think as we draw to a close of this section, um, as of course, you've read the book also, we perhaps wondered if you've got any thoughts you'd like to share about the book. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for that. Lovely, thank you. Uh, very touching. But I, I think it, it also, that, that has kind of summed up, I guess, my experience of the book launch as well. I think, and Joe said this already, when, when we first start to be ourselves in these spaces, it can feel very lonely. Uh, and if we look at, you know, the kind of the effect that the podcast has had, you know, you've had several exceptional guests you know uh lots of also celebrities as well as educators and i think um it's the call kind of towards the end from peter tatchell in in the book the call that it, it is a collective effort it's you me and all of us it's all of us together and i think the event on sunday the book itself and the podcast allow us all to feel more at home in ourselves and therefore able to go out and do this work I want to thank you so much, George, for taking the time to speak to us today, for all of the support that you've given us over the last three years of, of Pride and Progress, because you're right, as as Peter says, it's it's you, it's us, it's, it's all of us working together. But there was a time where it was just the three of us in a Zoom call trying to record the first episode of this podcast. And we're so thankful to have had you on the complete journey of Pride and Progress. And not only are you joining us for this discussion about our new book, we're going to listen now to the panel discussion that happened on Sunday during our book launch. That discussion was recorded live, so the audio quality might not be as good. George is on the panel and we'll let the other panellists introduce themselves. Hello, good afternoon. We're really... Excited today to be joined by three of um, our friends of Pride and Progress. All three of the people on our panel today have been on the podcast. Um, you can see their names listed in the back of the book. You can listen to the episodes that they're part of. I'm going to hand over to each of them to introduce themselves. And then Adam and I have got a couple of questions that we'd like to ask each of our guests. But then we'll come over to you. Um, so if there's any questions that you think of, that you want to ask people specifically or generally, anything that we can help with, then... Um, we'll come to you for questions in a while. Hello. <laughs> Hello, I'm Ash. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a teacher educator. And a legend. And a fan. <laughs> uh, hello, I'm Scotty. I'm an English media teacher, and I'm really passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, hi, I'm George. I am a trans uh, Catholic teacher of RE and a diversity and inclusion lead at a Catholic school in Leicester. Um, I'm going to start off with you, George, if that's okay. Um, we've all met George already. Um, he's brilliant, as I'm sure you've gathered. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how we first met George. Adam, you, you mentioned that, that George was part of your research. When we first started to do the podcast, um, I was nervous. I didn't know if it was something I could do, if I would be good at it. And we'd, we'd just ordered a microphone. It arrived that morning. We were recording that afternoon with George. And within five minutes of that conversation, I felt so much at ease. Um, George is, is brilliant, a brilliant educator, and talks so clearly around so many of the topics that we, we want to explore this afternoon. Um, George, you mentioned there that you are a trans educator in a Catholic school educator of RE. 
Um, not only is George working in a Catholic school, but George is working in the Catholic school that you used to attend when you were a student, when you were younger. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that journey for you as a trans person rejoining a school that you used to attend as a young person. Um, so I, probably comes as no surprise, but I was a bit of a pain in the arse at school. <laughs> um, I started secondary school in 2004. Um, and there were just no words to really explain how I felt. Um, so I didn't have the words, um, so I just behaved like badly. Um, so I was very argumentative and I used to kind of behave in a way that it wasn't great. And the annoying thing about working at the same school is I can see my old behaviour record. Um, so I can see I actually got a detention for calling someone a toss pot. And they, still, <laughs> they still work there. So, that's all good. Um, I first, I guess when I, I became Catholic at secondary school, so I was baptised in the school that I went to, and because um, I turned it around, um, I found Jesus. Um, the teachers of that school were my baptismal sponsors because I was 16, they kind of sponsor you, um, they become like, they're like godparents but they have no responsibilities for you because I think that would probably be like a safeguarding breach. Um, and I always knew that I probably would end up going back there. When I first started teaching, I was teaching in London at a long girls school, um, a Catholic old girls school, the one that Tony Blair's daughter went to, obviously way before my time. Um, and they had two trans pupils, two female to male trans pupils, and it took them a process of about four years to get into place, you know, calling this pupil by the right name, using the pronouns, finding a uniform change for them. Because there was lots of conversations with the Catholic Education Service, there was, there was a kind of understanding, you know, we don't really know what to do about this, so we'll just sweep it under the carpet. Um, when that happened, there was a massive kind of call online from a, a Catholic um, journalist. There, were, there was a, a, a huge backlash. So she kind of said that the school should be stripped of its Catholic status. Um, there was a parent who's, who took their child out of the school. Uh, and I thought, I really, I, I don't know if I can transition here. Um, so I went back to my old secondary school because my friend's going on maternity leave. Um, but when I got there, I said, look, I'm one month on hormones, I was still finding my chest at this point. Um, I said, I'm getting to the stage where I'm, I'm very happy to talk about this and I kind of understand what Catholic teaching says around this. And they were like, well, don't worry, you don't have to say anything because no one's expected to talk about their personal life. But that stopped me talking about myself openly where it didn't stop others. You know, I work in a department where the people were interested in my wife, my husband, my child, and I'm like, oh, when I was a young girl, uh, it, it kind of prevented me from being able to have a conversation about who I was. I had to really look into that and see that you know, my, my identity was intersectional, that I was a Catholic person and also an LGBT person. And I spotted that the behaviour in the school wasn't great towards people like myself, and the school just didn't really know what to do. It wasn't out of malice or hatred, they just didn't know what to do. And I thought, I've got a voice and I now need to kind of stand up for that. And it's nicer to do that, I suppose, in a place where you were once supported before. Uh, it's, it's been a hard journey. And I think I remember when I first met Adam, I was coming with some positives that were happening. That's because I'd had to really persevere and push. 
uh, and I felt that if I could offer other schools the, the ability to have a look at these things, someone else wouldn't have to push quite as hard. And there's, there's a quote from George in our book that I just want to read now. It says, um, I've had more than one child on numerous occasions ask me, but can you actually be a transgender RE teacher and Catholic and transgender? And I'm standing right in front of them, so of course the answer is yes. And one of the things that really struck me when I, we had our first conversation, George, was how you were quite, um, quite simply, um, but quite, quite hugely changing the culture of your school. So um, a lot of your actions, I think, you wouldn't describe as kind of huge acts of advocacy. Um, but the, the things that you were doing were, were having a huge impact on your school. Um, I've heard you describe this before as subtle, subtle activism. activism. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that phrase means to you. Um, so I used the phrase subtle activism. When I first started, it was a bit like, please, please just turn it down. Like, Jenny's talk about it. There's no reason for this to kind of be coming up. Um, so I started to do small things. It was like in the, in the wake of COVID. Uh, so I wore a rainbow face mask. Um, and a child, I don't know who the child was because I didn't teach them at the time. I don't know if they're still there because they were also wearing a face mask. But they came up to me and said, that's the first time I've ever seen anything that makes me feel seen and heard in this building. And I thought it's just a simple thing of just wearing a face mask. Um, and then I was dancing around the corridors to Tina Turner, which I said was subtle activism. But for me, it was some small, simple signs, some small, simple, visible signs. So if I was here, I'd do the standard rainbow lanyard with the keys. Um, might be talking about getting people to wear stonewall laces. I have a Pride Progress flag in my classroom and we've had lots of conversations about that. In Catholic schools in the US, they say that the only flag you can have, uh, apart from there's a flag about the right to bear arms, but you can have a flag of the, of the United States flag, that's it, because it's a political statement. But I say, you know, in a Catholic school, we have to understand and educate by meeting people where they're at. We educate the whole person. And I know we do that in all schools. And I don't think you can do that unless you show that you can be knowledgeable and a safe space for people to be. So the first things for me were just small little visible icons. On my lanyard I have a, a rainbow cross. Uh, they're just small things like that, pronoun badges, pronouns in my email signature, small things like that. They have met some backlash, uh, but I find if you persevere, if you're just really argumentative, you'll probably be okay. Um, but small things like that just make it, make it easier for people to start to see why you're doing that. Because when I put pronouns in, I got a question about why is that necessary? You know, you look like a man, I'm going to assume that your pronouns are he, him. But ah, when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. Um, but yeah, it gives you the opportunity to start educating in a small way, and that then helps other people to see that there might be bigger things that we need to tackle. In particular for us, we needed to tackle our behaviour policy, because it didn't deal with homophobia and transphobia in the same way it dealt with other discriminatory behaviour. But that became more obvious with the visible signs of people being supportive of one another. George is, um, is fantastic on holistic diversity, equity and inclusion in schools. He's fantastic on trans inclusion and he's fantastic on that, what sometimes can be a friction or a tension between um, Catholicism and LGBT communities or faith communities and LGBT communities. So do feel free to, to chat to him again later on. Um, I'm going to hand over to Adam now. Uh, I'm so grateful to Ash for joining us this afternoon. Um, the reason we asked, well, there's many reasons we asked, asked Ash to be part of the panel, but one of them is because she's here in the role of an ally. 
Now, Ash is such a wonderful advocate for the community, but I know Ash quite well, and she messages me things she's done in her practice, the pictures of the podcast, things that have changed in her thinking and the way she's about things. So we're really excited to have her here and perhaps tell us what some of those things are. So my question, general question, I mean, last night she texted me some quotes about the book, which I said she had to say today, so I'll get to those in a second. But one of the nicest things you ever said um, is that the podcast is like the best free CPD you ever had. Um, so could you perhaps just tell us a little bit about how it's changed your thinking and perhaps a little bit how it's changed some of the practice that you've done? Thank you. Um, so yes, I, I read it last night. I said to Adam that I think it's lovely. Um, I think you've done such a good job. It's really readable. Um, it's got the sort of academic spine that I think if you want to go in and have a conversation with someone that's not on board, you've got that bit behind you. Um, and I also think, I said to Adam, it's like, you know when you go to Pizza Express and they give you a small dessert rather than like, like a half-sized dessert? It's like that. It's like each chapter's really small, really beautifully made, and you can read it really quickly, which I think as a teacher you just want a quick access to it. But also if you read the whole thing, it's like having a chat with everyone on the, po the podcast. It feels like a community. I think it's really generous because you so cleverly reference podcast episodes and obviously knowing people. Um, I saw Spence earlier who I only recognised from Twitter. Um, but people from the, in, in the community that are on the podcast you are part of that group and it feels like a family. Um, I work at a university and educate uh, trainee teachers and things I've taken from the podcast, one of them is about introducing myself with pronouns, which at the beginning felt a bit weird, but I got used to it because you do it so beautifully on the podcast. And then the conversations that happen, because we've got a, a generation at the moment of trainee teachers who go into schools and some of them haven't been in a school since they went to school. So they're coming into teaching, being incredibly brave, because some of them had a really rubbish time at school. So when you ask them about pronouns, people actually, I use they and them, and I'm a little bit worried about what school's like as a non-binary person. I'm saying to Adam, and then I'm like, ha ha, can I introduce you to Pride and Progress? Actually, there's a whole community of amazing people out there. Um, so I was saying I prescribe your podcast like medicine. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what's so lovely about it. I think um, you spoke earlier, Joe, about hope. I think that's really lovely. I think it's, it's training to be teachers lonely anyway. We've talked about this before. Um, because, I mean, you remember this, Scotty. Trauma, recent trauma. Um, but it, it can be really lonely. You work really late. You don't see other people. You don't socialise. And I think the other thing that you've both done, as well as the book and the podcast, is the network that you've created. And our trainees love that because they don't feel as lonely. I think that's really significant. So, yeah, thank you very much, both of you. Um, quick book review, it's great. Um, uh, dessert references, done. Uh, 90s pop culture. <laughs> 90s pop culture references are excellent throughout. Uh, the Matrix is my favourite. Um, the Matrix, actually, and Adam's point about heteronormativity is the idea that it's like the Matrix, so you don't see it because you just live in it all the time. You don't notice it. And I think one of the things I was <laughs> WhatsApping Adam last night, I was reading Fantastic Mr Fox to my three-year-old, I was halfway through and I was like, why are all the animals married and straight? <laughs> I was editing it as I read it to uh, give them all a little bit more of a backstory. And I think it's things like that. You start to notice things and you feel more confident about knowing how to challenge because you realise that that world is incredibly uncomfortable for people. And starting those conversations and starting to think about, we were talking about stories as well, and meeting all those people, I think a lot of people wouldn't be as hateful to people if they met them and they learned about their experience. And I think that's what's so powerful about the book and the podcast, is you, you hear someone's story and you step in their shoes for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Ash. I've got two more quick questions, that's okay. Um, okay. One of the lovely things you shared is we did an episode where we were talking about Heartstopper, the Netflix series, and Ash was a, a member of the panel for that conversation. And then you had a really lovely conversation with your husband, and I think 
wider family. Um, so perhaps we wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about that story. I think that really opened up a really lovely conversation. And my second question is, in terms of people that want to be better allies or advocates, what kind of advice might you give them? Pressure. Sorry. Uh, so, favourite story about Hotstopper was that lots of my family listened to it, and I went out to celebrate with a friend. And when I got home, my husband was googling um, straight privilege, and he was like, "Did you know this is a thing?" Yes, yes, I did know it's a thing. No, you know it's a thing, and it's great. But conversations at home again about what's happening, and and the fact that again the Matrix, things aren't the way that they're presented in Fantastic Mr. Fox. My uh, three-year-old was at school this week and got into an argument, or last week, sorry, got into an argument with an, another kid who's three about how they couldn't both be a mama for the baby doll they were playing with. And my three-year-old was like, some, some people have two mamas. Why, why can't they both be mamas? And the other kid was like, what? And he came home and he was, he was genuinely really, really angry that someone else saw the world in that way. And I think it's things like that. It's having conversations with them so they feel that they can argue for those things and they can see those things in the world. So yeah, I'm going to start buying more families with two mamas <laughs> at home so it becomes part it's of the rewrite Mr. Fox, I think. Rewrite, I was editing Mr. Fox as I was reading it. I was like, oh, Mr. Mole, he's a single dad. Yeah, Finn was like, just get on with the story. I was like, no, no, find <laughs> out more about story. these animals. <laughs> I can't remember really the second um, question. What advice would you give for others that want to be that are better allies or advocates? Um, I think the podcast is a really good place to start. I think, um, and asking questions, I think, is good. I think it's. I think people are really scared of looking silly, um, and we. I think a lot of people again. We talk about school being a place that sometimes is, is full of fear, and you, you can't train to teach unless you feel safe, and you can't be as good as you could be if you feel safe. And if part of feeling safe, you need to be in a place to ask those questions. And I think that's what the podcast does. I think it gives you access to a community of people that you can ask those questions or you can go to it with a question and find a, an episode that answers that or with the book has required reading which is also excellent um yeah. can we show how many posters you put in your copy is it somewhere else uh, Claire's <laughs> i was excited i was showing show that i posted to her bit you, you know an academic credit book when it looks like that when there's a uh, 27,000 posters. Uh, yeah, uh, do a little flip <laughs> my, um, my sister went to uni with a girl who was obsessed with Phantom of the Opera and she was so obsessed that she had five copies so one at her house, one at her parents' house, one in the shed in case her house burned down one somewhere else and I said to Adam and Joe I need a hi copy to highlight, a copy for the office a post-it copy one for show. Yeah. yeah, one for show. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ash, that was great. I think your point about questions was really important. So often we are scared of saying the wrong thing or scared of offending, and that shuts down curious conversations. Um, so on that note, in a few minutes, we're going to be asking if anyone has any questions. So please, um, it's, it's important that we reiterate that all of the knowledge on this panel today uh, is what we have collectively learnt. Um, and, and we're all here to kind of learn together. So please do feel comfortable to ask questions in a moment when we get to that. But before we have our final guest on the panel, our friend Scotty, um, can we get a little bit of commotion for this outfit? Isn't it fabulous? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, when we first met Scotty, you were training, right? Oh, it was um, right. your training year as a teacher and um, now you're an early career teacher. So quite a different experience to, to some of us on the panel. Could you tell us a little bit about how you found navigating diversity, equity and inclusion as an early career teacher? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's worth saying to begin with is that the, the school that I trained at was the school that I attended. So I, you know, it's a very similar story. You know, very similar story to the majority of us is that we always end up going back to those spaces where we were before those sort of those early years, 
And I remember thinking about coming back into, you know, training into being a teacher. At the same time, I'm really proud of who I am and where I come from as well. So being able to go back to that space and also thinking at the same time, this is the place where I didn't feel like I'm most comfortable growing up. This is the place where I didn't feel like I could be fully myself growing up. But even more so when I sort of came towards the end of my educational career time there as a student, I just sort of gained that mindset of thinking, I'm just going to be me, and if you don't like that, that's your problem, not mine. And going with that mindset then, moving away to university, but then coming back sort of four or five years later, I was thinking, how am I going to manage this? How am I going to navigate going back into this school now as an openly gay man, as someone who is quite confident and quite happy with who I am? What's going to happen when I get asked those questions? Like when you get asked the question, and you always know it's coming, you always know the question is coming. And I remember the first time it happened, and it was, we were all teaching in bubbles, so we've got year nine in a science block, Friday afternoon in a science block with year nine. I think we can all, you know, empathise and sympathise with the situation. So, I got all these, you know, I got these lovely kids, you know, and they were doing their thing, and I set them off on a task, and I went over to a girl at the front, and I was talking to them, and, you know, I was approached them and said, you know, how are you getting on the question to? And I could see that she was more infatuated with the pride face watch that I got on my Apple watch and I was thinking oh no the question's coming and I could see that curiosity in her face and she looked up at me and she went Mr Carrack can I ask you a question and I was like no you're not going to ask me a question you're going to ask a question <laughs> and uh, I said yeah yeah go on and she said are you a member of the LGBTQ? That was some kind of like pop <laughs> group sensation or something. <laughs> Love it. I feel like we need to. I feel like this is what we need to be. Like, you want to talk about where to go to next? We need to be a pop group. Your revision next year. That's all I'm saying. But it just when she sort of asked that question, I was thinking there's one or two ways I could go about this. I could either answer the question honestly, or I could think, no, I'm just going to go down the usual route how people do it and dismiss the question. Just say you shouldn't be asking that question. It's inappropriate. Why do that? Why do that? I spent so much of my time in this educational space being uncomfortable. I need to reclaim that. Mm -hmm. So I took the moment and I said, Yes, I am. Now you can finish question two. I just came, you know, I, I answered the question, but I thought that was such a much better way of handling it rather than saying, No. I acknowledged who I was. I'm proud of who I am. And I wanted her to see that. And I, I think it threw her off a little bit, but at the same time, you could sort of see that look in her face thinking, Oh, all right, okay. Yeah, and she then just got back on working. Mm -hmm. So it was perfect. And then that, for me, then gained and allowed my confidence to build up over time, you know, over the course of the training year. Um, you know, it, it, it's safe to say, Ashlyn was one of my tutors on the, on the course, on the PGT course, as was Adam as well. And I've never felt so comfortable and so welcomed by a group of people as I did with our co-op. I think our co-op was, you know, I'm always going to say this, I think our co-op was the best co-op. Um, I know some people sat in the room that are on future co-ops, sorry. But at the same time, I loved it. I loved how open and honest we were about things and how supportive we all were. So getting towards the end of the year when we then did a research project and we'll think about well, what areas of interest do we want to do. So I knew that I was passionate about diversity, equity and inclusion work and so obviously then when Adam was saying that was going to be a possibility, I wanted to get involved in that, I wanted to jump on that. And to be able to stand at the front of a group of amazing people, future educators that are going to go and you know, change the lives of tomorrow's adults, is thinking about what can we all do and what can we all take away to make our educational spaces much more inclusive, you know, just as Joe was saying at the start of this, it's thinking about how can we shape tomorrow, make it better today. 
So it's, it was that sense of when I was then doing my presentation, you know, I was on the conversation area actually about preparing work and putting together like acronyms and initialisms. So I call myself the queen of acronyms and initialisms. I love it. Anything that I can make into some kind of quirky thing, I love to do that. So my whole project was, strength, was centered around the idea of sword, which is the idea of like all these straight white old rich dead men, and why are they on our curriculum? <laughs> uh, sometimes I feel like just going like into the middle of a teacher CPD session, just saying like, you know, all these straight white old rich dead men in our curriculum, can I get an amen, you know, if like, we need to change this stuff? <laughs> and, you know, feeling my RuPaul fantasy. But at the same time, I also acknowledge this is a real problem and we need to change this. So we all did a bit of a sort of curriculum study within our group, and mine in particular, you know, English and media are my trade and my passion, you know, so stories are like pretty much my bread and butter. So I thought about what can we do basically to uncover that hidden curriculum. I've been able to do that project, being able to talk openly and honestly about who I was, but also how we can make things a little bit better for our students. I just think in time, will make things better. I know it's not going to be an overnight change, and I think we, you know, we'd all be naive to sit here and think that it's going to be an overnight sensation thing. We know it's going to take time, but if we can keep pushing, if we can keep working towards this better and inclusive future, then you know, what a better future we're actually going to have, in essence. Thank you so much. Um, you mentioned, though, I think you used the word reclaim, kind of reclaiming that educational space. And in the book, we use the word reimagine, um, because I think that's what this is about. It's about looking at the educational spaces that we have, the systems that we have, and reimagining them to make them more inclusive spaces. And that involves work with teachers, but it also involves work with families and the community that we serve in schools. And, and one of the questions that came from, from somebody in the audience today says, how can educators engage with parents to promote support for people in the LGBT community? Um, I've got a couple of things that I would say on that, but does anyone, any of you three um, want to start us off with thinking about how we engage with parents? Yeah, absolutely. I think. Firstly, you've just got to be honest. I think you've got to be honest about what the gravitas of the situation is, the fact that, you know, diversity is a fact of life. We're all different. You are going to meet different people throughout your lives. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're LGBTQ+, whether you are uh, black, whether you're Asian, whether you're male, female, non-binary. We, we all exist. We're all different. So acknowledging that from the off is an important step. But even more so, when I think back to the school community I teach in, which is the, the community I live in, I know for a fact that we are not the most progressive, I think, at times, community. So just knowing that a parent can come forward and say, look, I've got my child at home, they think they might be gay, they think they might be trans, they think they might be non-binary, they're really struggling at the moment because their kids are being like, racist towards them. And it's just think about, well, firstly, you've made a huge big step already by asking the question, by approaching us and saying, I want to be better, I want to help them. So firstly, you have to give them a bit of kudos for that. But then secondly, thinking about where can you signpost them to all the great stuff. So we know, and I always will advocate for, whether it's for teachers or for parents, I'll always say, go and have a look at the Pride and Progress podcast, go and have a look at this person on Twitter, go and have a look at this organisation. And just doing, I think like George was saying earlier, just doing little things can have a, like a bigger impact in the future. So whether it is wearing a badge on your lanyard, whether it is signposting a website, whether it is bringing a parent in for a frank and open conversation, I think can be a really powerful thing. I've definitely found that across the course of this year, I've had several conversations with parents who have said to me, you know, my child thinks they could be trans, my child thinks they could be non-binary. Um, I don't know what to do, I don't even know where to start. You know, my mum sat in the audience with me as well, and my mum will all constantly will ask me questions about things, but I don't understand. 
So now I'll spend this whole sort of like 30 or one hour sometime, sorry mum, but I'll spend like, you know, up to an hour sometimes having like this educational rant at her in the hope that she'll get it. But I know it's not coming from a place of malice, it's coming from a place of curiosity. So just be, just be uncomfortable sometimes with being curious and just allow your curiosity to guide you, I think is the biggest thing I would say. Um, the, the two things I would say around in, engaging parents with inclusion work in school is that your, if your educational space, your school, um, university, whatever it is, is taking a holistic approach to diversity, equity and inclusion, um, that's, that's a really important starting point. So this isn't about trying to make our schools inclusive for LGBT people, it's about trying to make classrooms where everyone feels that they can belong. And if we take that holistic lens to the conversation, it widens it a little bit. We can talk about so many different experiences and how important it is that all young people feel like they belong in our schools. And secondly, just to, to own it and be loud about it, because so often the schools that I work with who have got difficulties in their communities with their families is because something's caught them off guard. They didn't know something was happening or it surprised them. If you have a holistic approach to diversity, equity, inclusion in your school and you talk about that openly, then it's less likely the community is going to be surprised by that, they're, they're going to be aware of it. Um, I mentioned earlier that kind of sentence in our book, it was on our screen earlier that said, every young person should feel free to be themselves, safe, seen, supported and feel like they belong. Um, if you name that in your school and you have your families and communities sign up to that as a common inclusion goal and you get your staff to sign up to it as a common inclusion goal, um, it can really help to avoid that situation where parents feel caught off guard or surprised by something that's happening in a school. Um, thank you all three of you so much. Um, if anyone does have any questions, please do put your hands up and um, we can ask questions directly to any of the, the people on the panel or to me and Adam or just broadly. Hello. I think that's a really good call. I think a lot of the time people want to help, but like you were saying about parents, don't know where to go. And I think that's a really important thing. So I think, again, reading the book, listening to Pride and Progress, and also following up on things. So Stonewall, for example, I was aware of, but I didn't know what all the things that were on offer there. And I think things like that, about educating yourself about what's available and who might need it is a really helpful thing to do. I do feel like I over-prescribe Pride and Progress, everybody, all the time. But I think that's part of it. I think being aware of of different things that people can go to with different questions is a really really helpful thing but I agree with you and I'd like it to be more joined up I think it would be really helpful if unis for example had a sort of a, a central understanding of what we need to do about which things and how we can best support and I think often it's I mean we've talked, we've talked about this before on the podcast about the, the weight of sometimes running those groups in school about the fact that you are the person who is the representative of the community and therefore you've got a huge amount of work to do on top of your job and how onerous that can be. And I think, I think it's something that is, is better shared amongst the community and is, is, a, is a universal priority. We all want everyone to feel safe and, and well at work. And I think, yeah, I, was a, I feel that was a politician's answer. <laughs> so I think, I think, yeah, trying to find out what's out there is a really good call. Adam also works at university. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add to that or build on. Blimey. Um, 
I think it's no more there because I've, I've just started. Sorry, I've just started at Derby University, so I'm new to it. And I think it's just having those. It's the informal conversations that led me, led me to find out, like, oh, there's this inclusion group here, or there's this people that want to make this change, but this thing doesn't exist already. So I think often it's those informal conversations, finding your tribe, as you said brilliantly often say, Ash, in terms of that, and just getting two or three people to think, right, let's start something. If there's a gap in a university or an education place, let's start something. And then, you know, a podcast starts with two people, and it snowballs, and it snowballs, and it snowballs. So I think if you want to do something, grab someone that also wants to do something and uh, make it happen together. Any other questions? Yes, Henry. Yeah, hello. Um, thank you so much. It's been so great. Um, I'm a big fan of yours. I don't know if you were um, So I work, in, I work at schools on the LGBT inclusive education. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was how do you get schools to constructively acknowledge the issues that LGBT young people face? Because I think LGBT young people are really good at not talking about it and therefore start often assume it's better for them than it actually is and getting them to confront that because they're often feeling like they failed. Um, If you're happy, George, because I feel like as, there's only two practitioners on the, in the profession at the moment on this uh, panel, so if you're most authentic to me, is that okay? Yes. Um, so I, I think one of the things that I've, I've tried to do is, is talk to other people, so again, informal conversations with others who you think are going to support that, but in particular school leaders. So when I first started doing like, LGBT inclusion work, it was a kind of like, you know, do we need pronouns and email signatures? It's like, no, we don't. But having them, you know, we don't all, you know, I'm not going to force them to do it, but having them does encourage that conversation. One of the things I've noticed in a shift, and this is my school, so it may or may not work. One of the things I've noticed when we've been better about teaching about LGBT inclusion and what that looks like in our Catholic school, one of the things that has happened is that it's led staff to want to get involved in other areas of inclusion as well. We now have a student group, so again, it's just through committed kind of conversations, little things. Um, we now have a student group who they sign up to be part of our diversity committee. They are not, they do not, you know, it's not like, hey, which protected characteristics do you tick? You, you know, you can come and join it, but we're going to work on all aspects of inclusion. And I think one of the easier ways, uh, which I think someone was saying previously, one of the easier ways of getting this work to be done is not to separate it in that sense. It's not to say, right, this, you know, let's host an LGBT Tuesday or let's do something for Pride Month, you know, on the, on the first day and then, that's, then let's leave it. It's looking at where you've got the opportunity to do that throughout the curriculum, throughout your policies, your displays, your website, your content, you know, your equality and diversity statement. I think once people are, the word is usualize that we use, I think instead of, you know, normalize, which I hate. Um, but when you usualize those conversations around different areas of diversity, I think the there is a shift that happens in the way that staff and students see that as working. One of the things that we do, we host, I know I just said you can't do it only once a year, we host it twice a year, but we try and do stuff, we, you know, we try and do stuff that follows on from it. We host diversity and inclusion weeks where we have speakers come in for you know a, a number of different reasons. So I had someone come in to speak about uh, forgiveness when things go wrong, when you know when someone persecutes against someone. Joe came in and delivered a great session on being trans and non-binary. Um, we've had interfaith panels. Uh, we've had you know educators kind of coming in to talk about a, a number of different things. And when students see that it means something to your staff, so I've had to send like a, 
that's not email. You know, when students see that it's important to you as a school, I think that the conversations start to change, if that makes sense. So I think you don't necessarily have to push forward to do something in particular for inclusion, but you have to look at what's going to change the landscape where you are. So, you know, we had teachers that would sit and mark during one of the talks. It indicates that what this person is talking about is not important. So I think once you've got that kind of culture shift and you can have a look and be honest about those conversations, it makes a difference. And I know that's really, that feels like a really non-answer, but it, it takes time, effort, but looking at what you can do throughout the year in a number of different ways. Brilliant. Um, the other thing I would just quickly say on that in terms of how you get, how we get school leaders to realise maybe the gravity of the, of the difficulties in their school. I, I worked in a school um, fairly recently and the head teacher said, oh, we don't, we don't have any homophobia in our school. And I said, sure, have you asked? And of course they haven't. Um, so finding a, finding a way that works best for your educational space to anonymous, anonymously ask these questions. Um, and it's really well supported by the, the broad pupil surveys that happen. So if you look at the safeguarding review from the key and the findings that that found about the experiences of LGBT people in schools broadly in the country, we look at the same kind of reports from Stonewall, it's very unlikely that your school is, gonna is, is not going to be having some kind of similar experiences to that. So that ho hopefully looking at those broader documents will be an encouragement for schools to ask their own questions. Um, and then when you ask those, anonymously ask those questions, find out the experiences in your school, that's when you can be able to then do the work because they've realised the gravity of, of what's happening in the school. Yeah, yeah and I think then to add to that, well, we often say there's, there's two arguments for this work. There's the moral argument and the legal argument. And I think having, and hopefully the chapter's going to capture that in terms of the Equality Act and the reason of place to keeping children safe in education, but then just the moral piece about actually making sure that everyone is safe and including themselves. I think that two-pronged approach with leadership is really impactful. Any other questions? Yes. I think it's, it's, it's worth saying, like I was saying, obviously, Adam was, was the hub lead when I was doing my pro, you know, when I was doing my project work and I was actually doing my teacher training. And I think when you see someone openly and comfortably talk about who they are, where they are being as visible as they are, it can almost act as a bit of a, a role model situation for you. So I felt, I felt comfortable doing the work I do now because I had people like Adam in front of me that was doing that work too. So just like when I see people like Adam, when I see people like George, when I see Ash, when I see Joe, when I see like Hannah Wilson, if any car at diverse educators, when I see all of these different people that are doing such important and credible work, sometimes then it can give you that, that sort of fire under your backside to go, actually, yeah, I want to do this too, I want to be involved because we've all got a voice, so why not let that voice be heard? So I think from, I suppose, and I hope I've answered the question by a, a lot of said, but just just be invisible and just keep pushing through what you want to do, but also what you know to be right, what you know, like Adam was saying, that sort of idea of like what is morally right, what is legally right as well. Hopefully then you will have, um, you'll not notice this maybe for you know, months, years possibly, or until you see somebody else who you've had an influence on doing that same work too. 
but all the better you'll feel for it. Like I hope that in the future I'll see a student that I taught five, ten years ago that will be in a similar position to me that will be standing up and talking about um, diversity, equity, inclusion work. Not just about LGBTQ plus inclusion work, but, but like you were saying, a holistic approach to diversity, equity and inclusion work because I think that is so important. George is that person for me. Um, and we've, we've talked about this before, don't act surprised. Um, but in the first series of the podcast, we interviewed George in episode one. And then a couple of episodes later, we interviewed an educator called B, who's a trans non-binary primary school teacher. And both those conversations completely changed my understanding of who I could be in educational spaces and how... Um, and and I, I, don't, I don't know that I would still be working in them if it wasn't for those conversations. So um, thank you, George. And on that note, thank you all three of you for joining us for this conversation. Thank you so much, all three of you. Joe, it's been a pretty wild week. How have you found it? Yeah, overwhelming, but brilliant. It's been so nice, um, not only to to see our book in person, but to see it kind of landing on the doormats of, of, of lots of people and people sharing that and starting to share their reflections and how, how useful they've found it. And also to, to get together at our book launch with a group of people, some of which we've never met in person before, and to be able to celebrate this book, but but really celebrate the whole project and the idea of reimagining our schools to make them LGBT plus inclusive. It's been, it's been really beautiful. How's your week been? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think overwhelming is the word. I, I got quite emotional on Sunday, just as we looked out into that crowd. Um, like you say, not only friends and family, which of course, you know, we massively appreciate their support throughout this processing for coming on the day. But like you say, so many people that we've not met before, that are fans of the podcast or the network and the things that we do, that come along and, and talked about how much this had meant to them. So yeah, emotional is definitely the word. Um, it's been a brilliant week. It really has. If you've been interested by what you've heard today and you want to find out more about Pride and Progress, making schools LGBT plus inclusive spaces, you can check out our social media. The links are all there and you can buy the book from anywhere where you would usually buy your books from Amazon, Waterstones or from, directly from our publisher, Sage. And we would also say, no matter where you buy your book from, Joe and I would be extremely grateful if you could take a couple of minutes to leave us an Amazon review, as that helps us get found by other people that might find our book useful. Thank you so much for being part of this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be really grateful if you could leave a review or a five-star rating, as this helps other educators to find these stories. If you want to continue the conversation, to comment or to ask a question, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Pride Progress. You can also find other ways to contact us in the show notes. Thanks for listening.